Okay, we have one assignment due today, and that would be homework number six, so we're getting down to the end there. Uh, of course, you could turn that in after class, drop it off up here afterwards on your way out, or submit it online on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow for full credit. Uh, the other thing that's up and available is the third of the iTunes quiz is now available for you. It'll be up the whole week, so you can take that any time between now and next Monday. That'll be up the whole week for you. And that does cover the pictures from the end of the last quiz, which would be the 4th of October, through Friday, which was the 7th of November. Pictures starting Saturday through essentially the end of the class will be the last, of the, will be the last or the fourth of the iTunes quizzes. There will be a regular quiz available the end of this week as well, which will be quiz number six that covers chapters 13 and 14. And that will be available starting on Friday once we're through, most of through all of chapter 14, which we should be then. And we'll run through the weekend again as normal. Uh, I did put up a sample quiz for number six as well, so if you want to take a look at that, that is actually available as of now. You can take a look at that quiz, which has sample questions from those two chapters that you're able to take and practice with as, as you like and take that as many times as you like. Uh, then also coming up next week would be the third article review. Uh, will be due on Wednesday of next week, the 19th of November. And homework seven. There it is is due on the 21st of November. So coming through, coming through to the end there, there are eight homeworks, so this is the next to the last of them. I don't believe anyone did. Did anyone happen to get homework seven off of what was on D2L early? I didn't think anybody was working that far ahead. I had the wrong one up, that's why. It's changed now and it's the correct one, but if anybody picked it up early, it was the wrong one on there up until about an hour or so ago, I corrected it. There was, it was the wrong version. It actually, went, it actually took the wrong chapters. So, But this will be the next one. This will cover chapters 14 and 15 and will be due on the 21st of November. Uh, coming up through the, through the end there. Then we have Thanksgiving week. Probably the exam will be the Monday. I would never give an exam on the Wednesday before because I don't know how many people will be here. But the, the fourth exam would be on Monday following this of the week of the week of Thanksgiving the week of Thanksgiving Wednesday I will have class although I do know people travel and may not be here so it'll just be a regular lecture that way you're not missing anything if you aren't going to be here you're not going to miss an exam or any any other assignments that would be done and there will not be a lab that week since we do not meet on Friday so there will not be any lab that will be covered that week specifically so that's what's coming up. That's what's coming up. And then, of course, after Thanksgiving, we have one week in finals. So we're coming up to the end real quick here. Questions on anything here? We're good? No? Alrighty. Well, picture of the day for today then. Uh, this is a protoplanetary disk. So what we're looking at here, we talked about star formation just a, just a week or two ago. This is a very young star in the process of forming. And what astronomers have done is they used the ALMA array. It's an array of telescopes that look at millimeter wavelengths. It's kind of in between the infrared, which would be a little bit shorter wavelengths, closer to the red, and the radio waves that are further out, much longer wavelengths. So 
looking at millimeter waves, relatively small, and looking at not just the star here, but we're actually seeing and able to image a disk around it. So we're able to see, and what they're noticing is not just that there's a disk here, we expect that because that's where the planets would be forming, but we're actually starting to see, not planets, but we're starting to see gaps in the rings, or in the gaps in the disk. So instead of just a nice smooth disk, which is how it would likely start forming, we're starting to see a gap here, a gap here, maybe a gap or two gaps here, and further out. That's quite possibly areas where a planet is forming and is beginning to clear out part of the region around it. So a planet, a larger object, could be forming in here and is picking up all that material, either collecting it onto itself or expelling it out altogether. So we may be seeing one of the first times a real, uh, actually a solar system in the process of forming. And could we come back a million years from now, give this some time to work? We might actually be again able to, wouldn't be able to really see them, but actually would be planets there at that point. So we're actually starting to get, get the technology to be able to see this kind of detail. How small signs we're seeing here, the resolution is about about five astronomical units from what they said. So you're seeing things, the smallest things you're seeing are the size of Jupiter's orbit. So you're not seeing down into the detail, you know, any little tiny planets would be washed out in there. You're seeing you know, little tiny details, pixel size would be, you know, Jupiter orbit size. So we're seeing really, really big. This goes out well beyond what would be the scale of our solar system. This is much larger. You're seeing way out into the edges of it. Our solar system would be in the inner you know, little intersection down here would be the size of our solar system. But what we're still beginning to understand now that we're actually able to finally look at other solar systems, it gets some for comparison and find out is our solar system unusual or is it typical? Because we don't know. For the longest time all we could study was our solar system. And is that, right, is that normal or is it not? Be like trying to understand all of humanity by studying one person. Is that person normal? Is that what all people are like? Or is that completely, is that not? Very difficult something to do. Now that we're really being able to start to see, we're detecting 1,800 now planets that have been detected outside of our solar system. Starting to see lots of disks, but here maybe even uh, formation, planets beginning to form and that's seeing some of that process. So it helps with a lot of the theories that are going on to really be able to see lots of different uh, solar systems out there. Questions? Yes, sir. You mentioned that there's 1,800 planets we've discovered so far. 18, what was it as of, 1819, I think it was, 1819 or so? Uh, any of them seem to hold any life on them? None that are known to hold, hold life. There are some that have been discovered that are in the habitable zone around their planet. And if you don't know what that means, that means they're at the right distance from their star to have temperatures reasonable to hold liquid water. Yeah, so, one that was circling a blue dwarf. yeah, there are some. There are some that are at the right. You know, if there could be real small stars, right? Those little tiny stars. There's probably planets real close to them, that would be at the right temperature. Or a bigger star, they've got to be further away. But there are some that are in that range and that are Earth-like planets. Whether there's an atmosphere, whether there is, you know, life there, that's something we have not been able to detect yet. So nothing that we actually can really know about. Anything else? 
Yes? Yeah. Uh, um, this might be a dumb question. Nah. But, so, when we go through all these planets, mm -hmm. how do we know that, like, is it just chemical or biological facts that, like, how life is sustained on Earth could be, could be the same in another planet? Like, what if another planet wouldn't be, you know, water or whatever that is It's a good, good question. It's, when we look at where life exists in the universe, we know of one place. We know the Earth. So all we can go by for other places is, you know, life is, would be like it is on Earth. That's the only way we know that life can form. Could there be other ways? You know, science fiction likes to do, you know, life based on silicon, rock creatures. Could that be a possibility? Could the atmosphere be something other than oxygen? Is oxygen required? You know, those are very good questions, but they're not something that is easy to answer because they're po we, we can't see we can't go look and say hey look there's a hundred planets out there that have life and these 50 it's based on carbon and 20 it's based on you know we have statistics when you have one you know it's like trying to judge all of humanity off of me or you does that really work no it's not going to become close you know you're not going to be able to pick any one person that's really going to be able to describe everybody when you can look at lots of them like we're starting to get lots of planets that helps now we've got to start finding lots of planets that really have life. Are they all intelligent life? Are they, are they have most of them just microbes? You know, really good things. And that's really the last, that'll be our last, last section of the class. We actually go into that in a little bit more detail. That's our last chapter. So won't hit that for until after Thanksgiving. But good questions, though. Anything else? Alrighty, well, let's go ahead. We were on chapter 14. We were looking at starting to measure the Milky Way. We're looking at our galaxy. And I had started talking about two different types of stars that were variable stars. And those were the RR Lyrae stars and the Cepheid variables. And here's some examples of what we see with them here. And that if we look at an RR Lyrae star, we see that it gets brighter goes from a little bit less bright than the sun here, or a little bit less, a little bit less bright here, to going maybe twice as bright, and then fades down and gets twice as bright again. It's a very regular pattern. We looked at the nova, it erupted. Right? It, it was a variable star too. It started off really faint, got really bright, and then fainter again, and might do it again 50, 100, 200 years later. This is a very regular pattern getting brighter, fainter, brighter, fainter, with a period of about a half a day to a day. So you can measure it over the course of that time. You can see the star get brighter and fainter, and it'll continue doing that you know, on and on. It's not just over these three days that we happen to look at this one here. If you looked at it, came back a year later and observed the same star, it would do the same thing. So this is one of those types of variable star. And all we're doing is looking at the brightness over time. A Cepheid variable was the other type. They vary as well. They'll get brighter and fainter. Again, maybe get twice as bright as they typically, as they are at their faintest. They'll get twice as bright at their brightest. They have a, very, a little bit larger variation. They're, the fastest ones can vary with a period of about a day, getting brighter and fainter. And they can go up to about 100 days, where it can take them three months. So it'll get real bright here, and then it'll slowly fade down, and three months later it'll be back to the peak again. So there are some very long period ones too. Now the example, the picture down here is showing you an example of one of these stars. 
looking at its brightest and its faintest. It's been highlighted there with the little box. And if you can see there, if you look at all these stars, everything is paired. That doesn't mean these are all double stars. That means what they did was take two pictures and just light them off a little bit and combine them together. So you just take two images of the same part of the sky and just offset one of them a little bit relative to each other, combine the images together. And for most of the stars, those two are the same brightness, same brightness, same, you know, all of them are pretty much the same brightness. This one here, one is significantly brighter than the other. We caught one here at the peak of the light curve when it was at its brightest and we caught one when it was at its faintest. So that's the kind of star that we're looking for. When we detect those kinds of stars, they're very important because they help to tell us the distance. We can start to learn about distances because it's go the brightness is going to then tell us, or the period here is going to actually tell us something about how bright those stars are. If we learn, out, learn how bright they really are, then we can find out how bright they appear to be. We can get some average brightness and that gives us the distance. It's going to be another way for us to get the distance to these stars. Why are they variable? Well, here's our HR diagram again. And there's our main sequence. Where do these stars fall? Well, there's our main sequence. There is a section of the HR diagram called the instability strip. Doesn't mean these stars are going to blow up. It simply means that there is, they're not in balance. And that what's going to happen to them is that they're going to go through oscillations. They're going to get a little bit hotter at their core, produce more energy. That's going to cause them to expand and grow get brighter, which is going to cause the core to cool off, and it's going to then shrink and contract and get fainter. And it can do that with a period of about a day or a little less for an RR Lyrae. It can do that with a period of a couple days to a couple months for the Cepheid variables. They can simply change in bright, they simply change in brightness. The sun does the same thing, except when the sun gets a little bit hotter, it almost immediately goes back to a balance point. It's very quick. It only gets a little bit hotter. It ex the core expands a little bit and immediately it's back to balance. These stars are in, in this instability area actually oscillate a little bit more. Instead of just getting a little bit brighter and immediately turning to balance, they're a little bit, they lag a little bit. So it's a little bit slower and they get brighter and bigger and then they'll fall back, fall back down. So when a star, as it goes through its life, happens to pass through this instability strip, then we'll be able to see it as one of these two types of variable stars, depending on exactly where it ends up. You might note this looks very close to the horizontal branch, if you recall. Stars went up into the red giants over here and came down into a horizontal branch star. So that's something the sun will eventually do. The sun may actually come out to be one of these stars at some point in the future when it's going through the edge of its life. Not while it's on the main sequence. It's going to sit there quite calmly right now. But we see a lot of stars like the Sun or even less massive that do become these stars at the very end of their lives. Now, using them to determine distances, the important thing is, is that there is a relationship between their oscillations, their period of oscillation, and their luminosity, how bright they are. Luminosity is the true brightness. That's like the absolute magnitude. That's how bright an object really is. How much energy is putting out. And there's a relationship. So if we look at the pulsation period here, our Lyrae stars, let's start with those. Those are the easiest. They're all about the same brightness. That makes them really, really easy. Because if you find one, if you identify one, you watch it 
and determine it, that it is an RLIRA star, you watch its variability. Once you determine that it is that type of star, you know how much energy it's putting out. You know how bright it really is. So you can take a device and measure how bright it appears to be from Earth, and you can immediately calculate the distance. So if you can identify a star as being an RLIRA star, you know its distance immediately. As long as it is, you're able to see that star, you can get that. Cepheids aren't quite so simple because they have a big range in periods going from about a day to about a hundred days here, from a day or so to several months. But there is a relationship. All the little ones plotted here, they fit pretty well along a line, meaning that their brightness, how bright they really are, depends on how fast they vary in, vary in brightness. The ones that vary very quickly tend to be less luminous, putting out less energy overall. The ones that vary slowly, taking months, are among the brightest ones. Those may, these may go from you know, a couple hundred times the brightness of the sun. These one can be tens of thousands of times more luminous. But there's a relationship, meaning, again, all I have to do to find this luminosity, not quite as easy here, all I had to do was identify it and it had one number. But here I just have to identify that it's a Cepheid. I've got to measure it over a period maybe of a few months to a year to find out its period accurately, how long it takes to go through those oscillations. Once I do that, if I find out that it's 20 days, I can read up here 20 days and that tells me how luminous it is. Again, once I've got that luminosity, I have the distance. So that's kind of what I say on the next slide here, except more in words. That was with the picture. This allows us to get the distances. Our Lyrae stars, they're not exactly the same, but they're close in brightness. Some of the Lyrae stars are a little bit brighter than others. There is some variation there in their brightness. But it's all close enough that once we are able to determine that it is, we can get a pretty accurate distance. Now distances in astronomy are not as accurate as we're used to. It's not like we're saying, you know, this thing is 10 feet away or 10 feet, two and a half inches away. You can measure something very precisely. In astronomy, there's a lot more error involved. In even the closer things, you know, we could be saying, so, you know, this star might be 500 light years, maybe it's 450, maybe it's 550. You know, 10% errors, that's pretty good accurate measurement, astronomically speaking. That wouldn't be very good here if I'm trying to measure, you know, the width of a table. I should better be able to do it more accurately than 10%. But astronomically speaking, that's really a good, accurate measurement. It's going to get even worse. It gets out when you get further and further out in the universe. You can talk about 20 and 30 and 50 percent errors as being real good. You just don't know exactly those distances. It's not something that we can easily measure. So are our Lyrae stars, once you identify them, great, you've got a distance. Cepheids, you've got to do one more step in that you have to determine, first of all, that it's a Cepheid. Then you've got to determine how long it takes to oscillate. Does it take a couple days? Does it take five days? Does it take 10 days? Does it take 25 days? Does it take 50 days to go from peak to peak? In order to do that, you don't want to observe it just once. So if you think it's 50 days, you don't want to observe just one and say it's 50 days. It went back. You want to observe several different ones. That's why I said it might take you a year of observing for some of these longer ones. But once you can get that period and get it measured accurately, we know the luminosity. We know how bright that star really is, and that's all we need. Once we determine how bright it really is, we can then measure 
We know how bright it appears to be. Comparing those two gives us the distance directly. Again, with some error associated with it, but we can actually determine that distance. So these are two stars that are going to give us one more step on our distance ladder. We looked at things like parallax for the nearest stars. We looked at spectroscopic parallax using the HR diagram to determine distances. And now we're going to be able to use variable stars. The nice thing about these is if you remember where they were in the HR diagram, they were all up pretty high. So they were all, main sequence was here, they were over here and over here. They were some of the big bright stars. That means that we can see them over much larger distances than we can see some of these others. That allows us to extend out our distance scale a lot further than we could just using the stars that are on the main sequence, which we used for spectroscopic parallax. So it allows us to expand out to, let's see, oops, sorry, I'm trying to jump ahead. Let me jump ahead and go back so I do this in order the way I'm, way I'm covering it. Then I'll go back to that slide. It gives us a chance to now expand out. We looked at parallax here out to a couple hundred parsecs. Parsec is about three light years, so about 600 or so light years. That's not very far. That's our very local neighborhood of stars within our galaxy. Spectroscopic parallax got us out to about 30,000 light years. That doesn't even cover our entire galaxy. That covers a big chunk of our galaxy around us, you know, about maybe a third or so of our galaxy, but doesn't get us through the rest of it. Variable stars, like the Cepheids and the Lyrae, get us out to about 25 million parsecs, about 75 or 80 million light years. That starts to get us out to some of the closest galaxies to us. Andromeda Galaxy is the closest large galaxy. It's about two, two and a half million light years away. That's very close. There's still, there, is, there are some galaxies that are within that range. This gives us our first measure of determining distances to another galaxy but not very far out. The universe itself is about 14 billion light years in size. So we're only going out 75 million, 75 million out of 14 billion. We're barely scratching the surface and getting out towards the edge of the universe yet. So that expands our distance ladder. Now let me go back to what I was going to do here because it also tells us not only about distances, but it gives us a better idea, a better understanding of our Milky Way. If you remember, last time I talked about William Herschel and how he measured our galaxy. And let me see if I have that here. Let me go back for one second. Um, is it here? There we go. I'll come back to that. Herschel had made measurements by counting stars. And he'd counted stars in all directions, and he made some kind of estimate of what our Milky Way was like. But he didn't know about dust, so he didn't realize that there were lots of stars that he couldn't see. But it gave us one of the earliest maps of our galaxy, trying to count stars. How many stars are there in every direction? What does our galaxy actually look like? So Herschel had done that at first, but now we're able to see further distances. And now we're able to see different objects. And what we're looking at here are our Lyrae stars are found in globular clusters for the most part. That means they're very old stars. They're stars like the sun that are going through the, some of the last stages of their lives. 
but they're located in globular clusters and we find that globular clusters are located all around the galaxy. They kind of surround them like a big spherical halo. So all around our galaxy. We can then measure them because they're not all in the disk. Not all of them are obscured or blocked out by dust. So we can see lots of these and we can find out where we are relative to the globular clusters. We make an assumption, we say, well maybe these globular clusters are all centered around the center of our galaxy. Makes sense, like, everything, like if you look at all the comets in the solar system, they'd be centered around, in general, around the sun. If you looked at all of them, looking at the globular clusters would be similar to that. They're in a big spherical halo that surrounds our galaxy. So we can then determine, because we can detect our Lyrae stars in them, I can now determine the distances to each of these globular clusters. And instead of just finding a few thousand parsecs, just looking as Herschel did at this little section right around us here, that's about all he could see visibly, we can now see all of these globular clusters. They form a sphere around a point about 8,000 parsecs away from us. 8,000 parsecs, about 25,000 light years away. And that is the center of our galaxy. That's actually helping us to locate and pinpoint the center of our galaxy. It gives us a much better picture because dust does not matter. We're looking further outside, we're looking at brighter objects and we're looking at different angles. We're not looking towards the dusty areas. So we can measure the distances more accurately and it really tells us not exactly what our galaxy looks like, but it gives a much better idea of the extent, how big our galaxy is. And we find that it's, you know, maybe a hundred light, a hundred thousand light years across, much bigger than what Herschel had determined hundreds of years ago. So these are our Lyrae stars, not helping us with other galaxies quite yet, but they will, and they are helping us really understand our galaxy, which is the purpose of what we're looking at for this chapter. All right, we did the distance scale, so let's look at what our galaxy looks like. Here's an artist's conception. Again, we can't go look, we can't go travel out there. No magic spaceship that'll take us out hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of light years to be able to look back on our galaxy. But we can use information that we get. We can study different motions of stars, motions of gas clouds, and try to put all that together. And we find that our galaxy probably looks something like this. There is a bulge towards the center, the yellowish area. The coloring is meant to be correct here. There's our sun a little ways out. And there's a disk of stars, disk of stars and gas and dust that surrounds it, much as the planets and asteroids in the solar system all orbit around the sun. You've got all of these materials, all of these stars in the disk orbiting around the center of the galaxy. We also have the globular clusters. They're scattered all around, not just in the disk. They're actually all around the galaxy. And we'll look at that in terms of how they formed uh, in a bit. But what we see in this disk, we see lots of things that we've talked about. We see gas and dust. We see lots of emission nebulae, lots of open clusters. All of these are associated with very young stars and star formation. You need the gas and dust to form the stars. When they form and they're very hot, they excite the gas around them, giving you an emission nebula. And as a bunch of them form, they form in groups and they form in clusters. So all of this is really talking that in that disk, there's lots of star formation. Other thing I didn't mention, O and B stars. It means they had to form recently. Those things don't live more than tens of millions of years. So if they're still there, they couldn't have formed when our galaxy formed 10 billion years ago. 
in order for them to still be there, they must have formed in the last few million years. Now let's look at some of the different parts of our galaxy. Our galaxy has a couple different parts here. We have a halo, which is older stars, globular clusters, very old objects. Remember the globular clusters are 10 billion years old, 8, 10, 12 billion years old. They're some of the very earliest things that formed around our galaxy. They were some of the first things to form. No gas and dust. So no gas and dust, meaning if there's no gas and dust there, you can't form any more stars. Right? Another star, a star can't form into another star. You need, you need material. You need some kind of raw materials from which to form that star. So if you don't have gas and dust, you can't form any more stars. So the halo formed stars at some point a long, long time ago when it did have gas and dust, and that's all gone now. So all that's left over, all that's left over are those old stars. And that's why the halo has kind of a reddish color to it. We look at the halo, we see lots of old red stars. That's because the brightest stars we see there are the red giants, the stars way over here that have go are at the ends of their lives. When we look at the disk, on the other hand, that has young stars. That has things like open clusters, emission nebulae, and it has lots of gas and dust. So lots of gas and dust. So we have stars still forming in the disk. So there's part of our galaxy where no stars are forming and haven't for billions of years. There's a part of our galaxy where there's lots of young stars. Stars have formed in the last few million years. And where they're still forming. And we've looked at that. We looked at some of the different areas where stars were currently forming. We looked at young protostars. Our galaxy is still in the process of forming stars and will continue to be so for quite a while. There's still lots of dark nebulae, lots of gas and dust in the disk of our galaxy that will continue to form stars. So we have the halo, we have the disk, and then the other part is the bulge, which is kind of that rounder area in between. You've got just the center, very, uh, the halo way around, but you've got the bulge around the center, which is kind of a mix. A mix of old and young stars. So it's really a combination between the two. It has characteristics of both. It has some young stars. It has a lot of old stars. The disk tends to look blue in color because the brightest stars we see in the disk are all the stars way up here, way up on the uh, main sequence, all the bluish stars. The bulge will look more of a yellow. It's kind of in between. You're getting a mixture. You're getting some young blue stars. You're getting some red stars. You're getting a mixture of the colors and it's going to average out to a temperature kind of in between and give you kind of a yellowish color. And that's what we see when we look at not just our galaxy, but as we'll come to later this week, other galaxies as well. We see that there are different components to them. We see that there's a halo. 
oldest stars, we see that there's disks for many of the galaxies with the young stars, and then a bulge in between with kind of a mixture. The bulge is kind of in between. And the bulge at the center of that would be the galactic center, which is where we'll find that massive black hole. In the case of the, our Milky Way, between three and four million times the mass of the sun. All right, so, what is our, so that's what we know about our galaxy. Those are the different parts. If we look at it, when we look, we've looked at it in visible light a couple of times. You really couldn't see towards the center. But like we did with our picture of the day today, we looked at the, we looked at the, the, the protostar, the young star in the infrared, because we could see through the dust. When we look at our galaxy in the infrared, we get a lot more detail. You have all those dust clouds that blocked out a lot of stuff. They're a lot less effective at blocking out infrared light. So when we look at our galaxy in the infrared, we're now starting to see a very bright point where the center of our galaxy is located. When we look at it in the radio, we'll see even more. We can really see the detail there because that radiation is able to penetrate. Whereas all the visible light from the center of our galaxy which we'll talk about next time when we get to the center of our galaxy, is completely invisible. It's all blocked out. Even though it's emitting more light than all of the rest of the stars there around here combined, it's emitting so much light, there's just enough dust there that it's completely blocked out. It's completely obscured to us. So that's why in cases like this, when we want to study things like galaxies, where there's a lot of dust, like young stars, as we did for our picture of the day, it blocks that, that when there's a lot of dust blocking things, we tend to use the infrared or the radio to really look through and to penetrate through that dust to be able to see deeper in there. So while we can't see the center of our galaxy in visible light, we can see it in infrared. It's brighter there. Now we have a really bright object here, something bright at the center of our galaxy, at that location. If we looked in the radio, it would stand out even more. You'd have a really, really bright object compared to the rest of the stuff around it. So we use that, use infrared in this case to be able to penetrate in and look at our, look towards the center of our galaxy and give us additional information. So something we couldn't have gotten years ago, decades ago, we would not have been able to get because we didn't have the technology to be able to observe in the infrared. So that's something that hasn't come until relatively recently being able to get above the atmosphere especially to observe this. All right. Now when we look at these stars in the we look at these stars and how they orbit, they have different orbital patterns. So this is breaking down our galaxy into those three parts I put up here, the halo, the disk and the bulge. When we look at stars in the halo, they can orbit every which way. There's no coherent pattern to them. So some of the stars might be orbiting this direction, some of the other ones orbiting this direction. Here's one going this way, this way, that way. There's no coherent pattern. They're all just orbiting around randomly. We see that in our solar system with the comets. The comets are very similar in this process to the halo stars. Much smaller scale, but around our solar system, they, comets can come in from every which direction they want. They're just scattered randomly around in a big halo around the solar system. Well, these oldest stars and the globular clusters do the same thing. They're scattered around our galaxy and can orbit every which way. On the other hand, if we look in the disk 
everything is going the same direction. You don't have stars in the disk generally that are moving opposite. You got the nice big flow here, everything's going around. In this case, uh, it's showing it going clockwise. So everything's orbiting around. You don't see a star going counterclockwise, at least not a disk star. You won't see any of those because there is a coherent motion to them. They're all going in the same direction. So that's what, so this is going to be telling us something about how our galaxy formed. In the bulge, it's pretty much random as well. I don't know if you can see the little yellow arrows on the yellow there, but there are some arrows, random arrows on there. They're going every, mostly every which direction, but there's a, if you overall, there is some slight rotation to it. It actually kind of fits as it did here. It fits in between the two. This one is completely ordered. All the stars are nicely going along the same direction. This one is completely random. The bulge is kind of in between. It's got randomness to it, but overall there's some rotation that fits around with the disk. Okay, so what do we know? We want to look at how our galaxy formed, which is what we're going to talk about uh, coming up here in a minute. In order to do that, we have to look at all these properties. Now we've talked about some of these before. This just summarizes it in the table from your text. And if we look at the disk and the halo and the bulge, we're going to see two completely distinct parts. The disk and the halo are almost completely opposite each other. One is flattened, one is spherical pretty much. One contains lots of young stars, one only contains old stars. One's got lots of gas and dust, one's got none. One's got stars forming right now. The other has no stars forming in the last 10 billion years. One has circular orbits, the other has random orbits. One has spiral arms and has some kind of structure. The other is just really completely random. One is a bluish color, especially the spiral arms, very blue, whereas the halo is very red in color. So we have two very distinct parts of the galaxy. So what we want to do is have a model that explains how our galaxy formed that explains these different components. So why do we have a disk? Why do we have a halo? And why do we have the bulge? And the bulge, again, very similar to something sort of in between those, in between those two. It's somewhat flattened. Yeah. It's got young and old stars. It's got gas and dust, some gas and dust. It's got some four star formation. It has pretty much random orbits, but kind of rotating overall around the center of the galaxy. Um, does have some structure when we look at the center of the galaxy. Uh, in the last section of this chapter, we'll look at that. And it's got kind of a yellowish white coloring to it. So what we really want to do is to explain how our galaxy formed. And these are the properties. This is what we see. These are the things we know to be true. Our galaxy disk is flattened. That's something we know. It does contain gas and dust. Those are facts that we know. So any model that we come up with has to be able to explain why we have this and why we have these two different parts. All right, so here's how we try to explain it. Basically, it's the same thing I used to explain how our solar system formed, but on a big, much grander scale. So what you would have is some gal couple galaxies, small galaxies, that were, this is very early on, this is 10, 12 billion years ago. There were lots and lots of small galaxies. They would have been combining together. They would have collided together to form 
one larger galaxy. There's this big galaxy that formed. What happens, what we believe happens when it forms is that there's some stars, there's gas and dust, there are some young stars that are forming, and as they collided together, stars don't collide, but the gas clouds do. Stars don't collide because they're so small. If we took 12 BBs that could just bounce randomly and bounce them around this room, they're not very likely to bounce into each other because they're so small relative to the separation between them. If we instead took 10, 12 big beach balls and bounced them around this room, they're going to keep hitting each other. That's the comparison with galaxies and stars. Actually, the BBs are way too big for the stars to, to scale. But to give you some kind of little concept of that, the ga this galaxies would actually collide together. So as they collide and the dust clouds collide together, they collapse. They lose energy, and instead of being in a big spherical blob, as those clouds collapse, they lose energy, and they drop down to this disk. So that's how the disk forms. But all these stars that already formed, they're not colliding. They're not losing any energy. So they stay as they were in their orbits. That's why the globular clusters are still there, and these very old stars are out in the halo. They formed before, as the rest of the galaxy was beginning to form very early on, before it collapsed. Once it started to collapse and start to spin faster, they got left behind. There's no reason for them to collapse into the rest of it. They had already formed. They were not colliding into each other. There was no way they were going to lose their rotational energy and collapse down to the disk like the rest of them. But since all the gas and dust collapsed down there, there's no more star formation out there. Meaning that we fast forward 10 billion years, those stars are still there, the ones that haven't gone through their lives yet, right? So all the O stars are gone, all the B stars are gone, all the A's, all the F's. The G stars like the sun are reaching the end of their lives after 10 billion years. All the stars that are left there afterwards are all these random ones from very early on that are the less massive stars, things the mass of the sun are less look very red because the ones that are going to be the brightest are the ones that are right at the edge of their life and have become red giant stars. They're the bright ones that stand out. All those little faint ones we don't see. So this gives us some kind of comparison and really looks a lot like how we talked about our solar system forming. We had a collapse there. and We have a black hole at the center here instead of our sun at the center. We have many stars orbiting around the center much as planets orbit around in a disk around our sun. We have old stars here in a random motion, kind of like the, the comets in our solar system orbit randomly around the sun. They can come in from whichever which random direction, up, down, whereas all of the other objects orbit in this flat disk plane. So it gives us some kind of concept of how we believe our solar system, our solar system in this case our galaxy, actually formed. All right. Want to get try to get to spiral arms today. So spiral arms are if we could zoom out and look at our galaxy from a distance, what would we see? Well, we would see that we could actually measure spiral arms there. If we could go out, we could make measurements to sort of infer this. We actually see that there's kind of this bar going through the center of our galaxy. We'll see that in a lot of other galaxies. Our galaxy is not just a spiral galaxy, but it's actually what we call a barred spiral. 
And we'll talk about those in chapter 15. But there are galaxies where the spiral arms come out of the center, a regular spiral. And there's some where there's a bar going through the center and the arms come off of that. I can't explain to you how we form spiral arms. I'll give you a hint in advance. I can't tell you how spiral arms form yet. We don't understand it. Why they form in the first place. I think we know how they continue once they do form. So why there are some with a bar and some without is another good question that astronomers are still researching. We'll see that a lot in the rest of the chapters coming up. There's what we believe is true right now, but we're, a lot of this is still things that astronomers are really trying to understand. How do we make these measurements? Well, we're sitting out here inside that, that. We can measure with radio waves, we can measure the motions of all these clouds all around the galaxy. And from that we can figure out the, how they're rotating around and determine what our galaxy must look like if we could take that trip. You know, hundreds of thousands of light years perpendicular to our galaxy to really be able to go and see it. So we know what kind of spiral, we know what kind of structure it has that it is a spiral galaxy. And what do we know about the spiral arms? Well, they're not like a pinwheel. They don't all rotate with the galaxy. Because if they did, we'd never see a galaxy like this. If they rotated you know, around, they would wind up very, very quickly. Galaxy takes, our, our sun takes about 200 million years to rotate around the galaxy once. That means in a billion years, the sun out here would have made five rotations around. If the spiral arms were rotating with it, the inner ones would rotate very quickly, the outer ones much more slowly, and you'd wrap that up very fast, and you'd see lots of galaxies. Wouldn't mean you couldn't see spiral arms, but you'd see things a lot more like this. Because if sun, in one billion years, it would make five rotations, in 10 billion years, it would make 50 rotations. You'd see lots of galaxies that are wound up really, really tight. And we don't see that. We see lots more galaxies that actually look like this. The spiral arms are really spread out. So they're not a fixture like that. They're not any kind of you know, material that is actually rotating with the same speed as the galaxy. What we'll find is that the stars actually go into the spiral arms. They come through and they go out as they move around the galaxy. So the spiral arms do rotate, but not near as fast as the, as the galaxy itself. The stars in the galaxy rotate a lot faster than the spiral arms. Uh, the spiral arms are actually what we call a density wave, is what we believe. Why did that form in the first place? That's what I can't tell you. We don't know why those formed. But we think of them as a density wave, sort of like a traffic jam. You got the slow moving truck on the highway and you got all the cars backed up going around it. Well, the truck's still going forward, you know, maybe 10 miles an hour slower than everybody else or more. So the whole thing is still going forward. The spiral arm itself, that backup is still moving slowly down the road. But the cars themselves are moving through it. You pass it and once you get out of it, you slow down. You're slow as you're going through that wave, through that uh, back up here, and then as you get out of it again, then you're traveling fa you'll be traveling faster. So it's sort of like that traffic jam. You build up all the stars in this area. They're all backed up. Once they get out, they continue on their way, but the traffic jam itself actually moves a lot slower than the average speed of the cars. The traffic jam itself will go a little bit slower 
and will lag behind. You could watch it. If you could sit there and watch the traffic jam from watch this from above, you'd see the truck there moving up, moving ahead, and you'd see the cars, you know, bunching up, and then once they get past it, they take off again. So it would only be that one section. That's how we think once they do form, once these density waves form, that's how we think that they maintain themselves. Through a jamming up of the stars, of course, once they also get jammed up there, you're going to jam up gas and dust, and when you do that, you tend to form more stars. So you get more and more stars forming, which perpetuates. Now you've got more stars forming, forming in that spiral arm, and sort of highlights them. That's why we see all those bright blue stars along the spiral arms there. I think I have one more on spiral arms. Let me go ahead and put that up. And then we'll come out to looking at the rest of our galaxy. We'll finish up our galaxy on Wednesday. But this sort of emphasizes what I already told you here. You know, we're forming stars, so those clouds and gas and dust, as they move through the spiral arms, there's more density there. They start to form more stars. So you get young stars forming, which explode, which then compress more material and form more stars. That's why we get lots and lots of blue stars here. Here's an example of one of those galaxies. Lots and lots of bluish purple, lots of stars here that are, have recently formed in this kind of density wave. But why they form in the first place is a very good question. You can form them, you can simulate the formation of a spiral arm by colliding two galaxies together just right. But is that enough to explain all of the spiral galaxies that we see? It's not that spiral galaxies are a rarity in the universe. There's lots of them out there. You know, a good chunk, a quarter or so to a third of galaxies are spiral galaxies. That's a lot of galaxies out there that fit this description. So is that all due to collisions? Or is there something else that causes them to form this kind of structure? We'll look at it a little bit more in the next chapter when we actually talk about galaxies in a little more detail. So I'm going to stop there. I want to at least get through spiral arms. And then I have a couple sections to finish up on Wednesday. And we should be able to get through 14 and on to 15 and talk about other galaxies uh, starting on Wednesday and Friday. So if you have a homework, I'll be happy to take it now. If not, make sure you submit it on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow. And I will get, try to get those set and get those and your labs back to you on Friday. Questions? Otherwise, have a good rest of the day.